because getting sued would really suck. It's time for some legal Q&A. What's up? What's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show. Because you're not afraid of hard work, you just want to make it work for you. Today, I'm joined by Miriam Tsaturian, a licensed and practicing attorney who focuses on helping bloggers and online business owners navigate the admittedly often murky waters of legal regulations and compliance. You can find her over at freelanceandmarketing.com. Miriam, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Nick. I'm glad to be here. You bet. So this show is a long time coming, a frequently requested topic. Miriam has graciously agreed to do some legal listener Q&A for us in today's show. We're going to tackle some big topics like entity selection, the dreaded GDPR. I always think of Dread Private Roberts when I hear GDPR, some liability insurance, stuff that impacts just about everybody. Then we're going to dive into some specific questions from the Side Hustle Nation Facebook group, sidehustlenation.com slash FB. We'll get you over there if you're not already a member. And sidehustlenation.com slash legal2 is where you find notes and links to all the resources mentioned in this episode. All right, let's dive into this stuff with Miriam. And for the sake of disclosure here, keep in mind that while Miriam is an attorney, she's not your attorney. So what follows is not legal advice, but is rather intended for informational purposes only. Let's kick this off with the entity selection question. This is always something that comes up. Does it matter where I incorporate? Do I need to incorporate? Can I run multiple businesses under one company? All sorts of questions like that. Do you have any blanket advice for people starting out wondering whether or not they need to register an LLC or anything like that? It really depends on the type of business you have. So full disclosure, I am not an LLC yet. That is something I plan to do. So I cannot in good consciousness tell people that you need to become an LLC immediately or a corporation immediately. Well, that's an important note here. So you're saying, hey, I can operate as a sole proprietor and that's just fine. In most cases, so there are specific career paths or specialties that are considered high risk. For example, anything in medical field, anything in the legal field, Anything in a field that has to do with people's money, such as accounting and taxes, people's homes and houses, such as architecture and engineering, those are all considered high-risk areas. Anytime a person can rely on your advice and there's a possibility that they might suffer for it, there might be some negative repercussions from it that will affect their livelihood their health, their well-being, those are all considered high-risk areas. And technically speaking, these types of careers, specialties, side hustles should all consider incorporating either as a corporation or forming an LLC as a limited liability company. Just because the risk is high, there is a greater possibility that somebody might come after you, sue you, and you want to make sure that at least your personal assets, such as your home, your car, your savings account, all of those things are safe. Okay. So that's the primary benefit of these entities is just liability protection. Like I'm going to protect my personal assets by putting the business, my potentially risky activities under the umbrella of this business. Yes, definitely. It's one thing I can see, okay, I'm a home builder and I built you a house and it fell over. Like I'm going to be, I'm going to have some liability for that. 
how about if I'm a blogger and I'm blogging about remodeling your bathroom or something like it's a different level of liability, you know, trying to serve this DIY market. Would you consider that still like a risky thing to be writing about? Yes. So the question you have to ask yourself is, is there a chance that somebody will come upon my blog, read what I wrote and act on it? If you're giving all kinds of advice or tips or strategies, let's say in that blog post, you're telling them, this is how you should, let's say, fix your roof or remodel your roof. This is how you should take down a wall. Like, I don't know. I'm just talking right now. I'm not an expert on any of that. But if somebody reads that and then decides to follow your steps and remodel their house, exactly as you said, even though you didn't intend that to be necessarily advice, but if they've relied on it and there was some kind of damage directly connected to your advice, then yes, there's a very big possibility that that person might come after you. Now, as bloggers, it is a little bit of a different animal from an actual like business out there, just because people generally know that blogging, you just provide information and it's slightly different. However, you still need a very strongly worded disclaimer policy that specifically tells people like, hey, this is information. If you act on this, you rely on this, basically you do it at your own risk. And we do not provide any guarantees, any warranties that this process works differently for everybody. There are some specific terms and clauses and sections that you must have in your legal policies. We'll get into disclaimers and policies and stuff in a second, because I think that stuff is, is super important. But going back to the entity selection thing or the entity question, you decide, okay, I, I would prefer to have some liability protection. That sounds good to me. Does it matter where I incorporate? Everybody's, oh, you got to have a Wyoming corporation, Delaware corporation, Nevada corporation. Does it matter? Or just like you register where you live, you register where you work? So it used to matter a lot, especially for bigger corporations, bigger companies. I'm talking about even now, if you're a big corporation, like multi-million dollar corporation, you might find it better to incorporate in Delaware or Nevada, just because those states tend to be more corporation friendly. But that's not the case so much anymore, especially for small to medium businesses. Because last changed, now it's considered best practice to form your corporation or your LLC in the state that you are. Just because, yes, an LLC or a corporation provides legal liability protection, but at the same time, there are a lot of tax implications. And right now, tax implications of forming your company or corporation outside of the state that you're in are big, are expensive. There's a lot of paperwork involved with that, and it might not even be to your benefit in the long run because it's really, really complicated. Gotcha. So as a general rule, just incorporate where you live because you're going to have to pay taxes there. Anyways, you might as well have some liability protection. Definitely. And like when you incorporate in another state from where you are, first, there are a lot of document kind of hoops that you have to jump through, a lot of papers that you need to fill out. So if you need to become considered a foreign entity in your own state first when filing in another state. So chances are, you're going to have to pay taxes in your state and you're going to have to pay taxes in the state that you're incorporating at the same time. So it becomes very kind of muddled 
So I think for simplicity's sake, especially if you're a small corporation, small to medium business, it's always better to just stay in the state that you are. Fair enough. I appreciate you sharing that because I've I've heard the same things like, well, you got to incorporate here. And it's just like, it just seems like more trouble than it's worth. Although I guess if it saved you a bunch of money, then maybe it will be worth it. But it sounds like that's probably not the case. And maybe we'll do another episode on the on the tax front again. Yeah, not the case anymore. Unless, as I said, you're a multi-million dollar or even like a billion dollar corporation. I wouldn't worry about incorporating or forming an LLC in a different state. Yeah. One interesting question from the group as it related to this entity question was, can I have one kind of umbrella holding company for all my different side hustles? And this was a question from John. He's like, I've got a book. I've got a public speaking gigs. I'm a photographer. I run a blog with affiliate links. Can I run that all under one kind of umbrella holding company type of LLC? Your short answer, yes, you can. There's nothing that says you're not allowed to have one LLC, an umbrella LLC, and have multiple businesses under it. These businesses can have their own DBAs, like doing business as names, so they're kind of separate. But one thing to keep in mind is when you have one LLC or corporation and then you have multiple businesses under it, if one business gets sued under that LLC, all the other businesses get affected. So if you have, let's say, I don't know, a produce store, and then you have this hair salon, and then you have this bookstore, and then for some reason, the produce store gets sued because somebody got food poisoning. These other businesses, because they're under that one LLC, also get affected. So they're essentially being liable. Oh, okay. So you have a simpler life filing, but you have a little bit extra exposure that way. Yes. Okay, gotcha. Did you know that roughly half of Side Hustle Nation hasn't started their side hustle yet? If that's you, I get it. Starting and building a business is tough. It takes more than just an idea. There are tons of moving parts, and it's a bit like trying to assemble your airplane in the middle of takeoff. Thankfully, our sponsor, Taylor Brands, is helping Side Hustle Show listeners make that leap and make it all a lot easier. Their comprehensive platform guides you through every step, making sure you have everything you need all in one place. Think of it like your behind-the-scenes partner for things like LLC formation, licenses and permits, getting an EIN, setting up your business bank account, bookkeeping and invoicing, insurance, logos, trademark protection, and a lot more. Taylor Brands helps you handle it all seamlessly. And to get you started, Side Hustle Show listeners get 35% off Taylor Brands LLC formation plans when you use our link. That's taylorbrands.com slash side hustle. Taylor Brands, like a tailor for your clothes. T-A-I-L-O-R-B-R-A-N-D-S dot com slash side hustle. Start your business journey today with the help of Taylor Brands. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over 3.5 million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. 
And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. At one point, I do want to clarify is that in most states outside of your kind of annual registration fee, the LLC is going to be a pass-through entity for tax purposes, meaning it'll just flow through any income that you're in will just flow through to your personal tax return. So just kind of the the state filing fee, so $800 here in California, it's probably one of the steepest in the country, which is obnoxious every time I write that check. But talk to me about the dreaded GDPR or general data protection regulation. If you're doing business online, and unless you've been living under a rock for the last year and a half, I'm sure you've come across this. What do bloggers, online business owners need to know if they are stressed out about this? So GDPR, it looks complicated at first. It is a huge document, but here's the gist of it. Anybody who's doing business online, you have to think about your potential customers, your email subscribers, in terms of their people. They're not just numbers, they're people. And as a person, you want to have choice as to what happens to you, whether you get an email from somebody, whether they subscribe you to something, whether they share your information with someone. So if you think of GDPR compliance in terms of giving choice to the person and getting their consent first before doing anything, the whole process just becomes simpler. Compliance, in my opinion, is extremely simple. If you understand the process, it doesn't take much. And I rather do things right from the beginning than risk having some kind of negative impact later. And I do have a GDPR checklist for free, more like a cheat sheet GDPR checklist. This is for people if they want to understand the process. It's a free download it's on my homepage, freelanceandmarketing.com. If you scroll down, you'll see the section that says free resources for you. And you can click on the GDPR one and download it for free. The new thing that people are talking about is the California Consumer Privacy Act. That seems to be worded similarly. It's very similar. If you're already GDPR compliant, there are only a couple of minor changes or tweaks that you need to make to make your site CCPA compliant as well. One of the requirements, obviously, you either need to have a separate CCPA policy or you need to update your privacy policy that includes the CCPA language in it. You also need to have this link called do not sell my personal information. And that link has to be visible. That has to be on your homepage, in your footer area. If you want to have it, that's totally fine. And what that link does is you have to give them either a very clear method of contacting you, such as a contact form on that page that has that link or an opt-out form that tags these people somehow in your system that they asked you to not sell their information. A lot of the other policies that are in place for GDPR are still going to hold true for California. So if you're GDPR compliant, as I said, you need to add only a few minor things to become CCPA compliant. 
And you just need to tell people that they have certain rights. For example, the right to request deletion of personal information, the right to request, obviously, not to sell, the right to demand disclosure in case of sale. And if somebody requests information from you, you have to provide them that information within 30 to 40 days for free without charging them. Like, what would that be? There's one thing, there's aggregate data in Google Analytics, not personally identifiable. Otherwise, it would be inside of ActiveCampaign. Somebody just requests me to delete their profile. Like, that's fine. What else would I need to do? Data is defined extremely, extremely broadly under CCPA, even more broadly than it is defined under GDPR. So obviously, simple things such as name, email address, actual physical address, if you have, those are all data, obviously. But also things like cookies, cookie preferences, IP address, geolocation, all of those things are data also. Basically, anything that gets picked up by Google Analytics, if you go to your Google Analytics and if you can, for example, create a report based on their location or based on what device they're using or where their IP address is, These are all little pieces of data. And if that person requests deletion of information, you essentially have to purge your system of everything that is connected to them. If you have a custom audience set up on Facebook that your pixel transfers information to, you need to make sure that person is not part of that custom audience. How would you even go about doing that? Is there like an exclusion, like upload an exclusion list somehow? But now that data is in the system too. There are ways to request deletion. So each company, especially each big company, they have methods where you can contact them and you can ask them to erase data. But if you're using semi-sophisticated or like sophisticated tools, I'm going to bring up ActiveCampaign again, but something like ActiveCampaign or Drip or Clavio, where you have the option of kind of directly putting people in a custom audience. And then you also have the option of removing people from that custom audience. Okay, sure. If it's that level, okay, like you've been segmented, uploaded as part of a database, a list, like, okay, that's fine. But so much of this anonymous data, well, if it's anonymous, I guess it doesn't matter. But I don't know how to delete your IP address from my, like, I delete your customer record. That's all I have on you. Mm -hmm. As long as you delete everything you have from your end. So for example, if they're requesting you to to delete all information on them, what I would do, obviously, delete their profile, delete their account profile that will unsubscribe them from your system. But sometimes companies retain that information on a backend. It's not just your system that you have to worry about. It's also the other guy, for example, your email service provider might still have data on that person, even though it's not showing in yours. And they do, most of the time they do have that just because, for example, when somebody unsubscribes from your list and they try to resubscribe again, if you've noticed a lot of the times it might not show up right away or it doesn't show up as a new subscriber. But if you type up their name, it shows that, oh, like this person's now on my list and they weren't before they unsubscribed. So that just tells you that this third companies that data processors, because you're a data controller, you control what happens to the data, but the actual processors are the companies. They retain that information and 
these big companies, as I said, they have links on their websites where it says like request GDPR deletion, or you can just email them and ask them to do that. And all of them are very forthcoming, are very friendly. But honestly, here's the thing. I wouldn't panic about this side of things, at least not yet. Hopefully one day when you get to like a multi-million dollar empire, you should seriously worry about everything and you should be 100% compliant. But the rule of the thumb is as long as you're making good faith effort to comply, as long as you're doing everything within your power to comply, you're good. And then if something is not completely right, they don't come and sue you right away. You're given 30 days to fix the mistake, to make it compliant. And then if you don't, after that, they will come after you. Okay, that's helpful to know. And I imagine they're not going off their mom and pop bloggers. You know, it wouldn't be worth their while. So they're going after bigger corporations. Let's switch gears here and talk about liability insurance or rather business liability insurance. This is a question that came up from, from several people in the group. Who needs it? What is it? What it covers? <laughs> Where to find it? All this stuff. Like, does a blogger need liability insurance either for what they say and the potential liability against them? Or are we talking about like liability for loss of business if my website goes down or something like that? It's kind of both. So first, when talking about liability, we have to differentiate that for business purposes, there are two types. There is the general liability insurance, and then there is the professional liability insurance. Most people, when they talk about business liability, I think they have in mind the general. And the general liability insurance, it's basically a type of insurance that protects you and your business against common law tort claims. For example, if you have a slip and fall accident on your business premises or another person gets injured on your commercial property or you cause some kind of damage to your property while you're doing your work, these are all things that are covered under general liability. Aside from those general damages, general liability also should cover things such as copyright and trademark infringements, libel and slander cases. And sometimes depending, you know, what kind of policy you get, how much it covers and all of that, general liability can also cover things such as settlement amounts, attorney fees and all of that. Who should have general liability? I honestly think... This is more important for businesses who have a presence outside of the online world. If you're a brick and mortar type of a business where you have like a physical location where clients come or customers come and you have interaction with them and something might happen there, I think this is when you need to worry about that. If you're making enough money where you can afford to get an insurance and your safety means more to you at that point. Protection for your future assets means more to you at that point than the monthly premiums that you have to pay. Then I would definitely say go ahead and get general liability insurance just because it will provide that protection against copyright and trademark infringement and slander and libel. But again, if you're just a small time blogger or beginner business with not much kind of presence out there, 
nobody really knows you, you're not making a lot of money, you don't get a lot of traffic, then I think this particular step is something that can wait until a little bit later in your business. And how about the professional liability insurance is like if you screw something up during the course of your work? Uh, yes. So some states mandated for certain professions. For example, if you're an attorney or a doctor, an accountant, an engineer or an architect, these are all considered high risk professions. And many states make it mandatory for you to have professional liability for California being one of them. But in many other states, it's not mandatory, but it's again, it's going to be a judgment call. How likely are you to be sued by a person, let's say, whose work you screwed up, whether unintentionally, it was negligence, it was an accident, but something didn't go right, or you didn't meet a certain deadline and then things fell apart from there. So this is the professional liability. And I would say, unless you're in a high risk field, I wouldn't worry about professional liability. Yeah, and you kind of have a sense of if it's required in your field or not. For example, my wife in her photography business carries professional liability insurance enough to basically restage entire weddings if a memory card craps out on you know one of their cameras or something like that. It's like, what's the worst case scenario? We could pay for this all to happen over again. And it's because it's such a unlikely scenario, the, the coverage doesn't cost very much to, to carry. How about if you're selling a physical product on Amazon, does Amazon provide any coverage for you as the marketplace? Or it's like if your product malfunctions or has some damage causing accident or something like a general policy would protect you there? That's a little bit of a different area because that's technically product liability. And product liability is not, unless you as a seller, you created that product yourself, then yes, that's like 100% on you. But if you're just selling that product and that, let's say, I don't know, you're selling car tires, you didn't make those tires, you're just selling them. And you had no advanced knowledge that something's wrong with that tire. And you regularly sold that product. And let's say that tire was defective whether it's a design defect or manufacturing defect, doesn't matter, but somebody suffered a damage and injury, they will try to sue you, obviously, because they got it from you. But what ends up happening in those cases is you as the seller countersue the designer or the manufacturer of that tire, essentially the company who created that. And then you settle out and you get out of the situation. And then it's the company who handles that with the buyer. It's a complicated field. I can't just explain that in a few sentences. But if it's a product liability issue because the product was defective or damaged and they suffered because of that, more often than not, it's going to be on the manufacturer or designer of the product rather than you, unless you had advanced knowledge of that defect. Okay, gotcha. If you travel a lot for work or for vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty 
when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. Well, let's dive into some of these questions from the group. The first one, actually a couple of these are pretty similar. The first one comes from Denise. She says, I love to cook and teach children's cooking classes, and I want to publish a collection of old-time herbal remedy recipes. My intention is not to give medical advice, but what kind of disclaimers would I need so I can avoid vulnerability for legal action? You have to consider whether somebody is likely to rely on what you write and what you say and suffer damage from it. Now, more often than not, our intention is not to harm anybody, and we don't know if somebody will be harmed, but if it happens, there's no helping that. Now, one of the most important things that you must have on your site is a disclaimer policy. And disclaimer policies aren't made equally because everybody understands what a disclaimer is, like, hey, I'm not liable if this happens, but there are specific ways of wording things. And then each field, for example, if you're in a medical field, your medical disclaimer is going to be focused on things that are relevant for that purpose. If you're in a legal field, you know, my disclaimer is going to be slightly different. Photographer's disclaimer is going to be different. So you have to tailor your disclaimer specifically to the situation from where a possible damage might arise. So if you're creating recipes, for example, I would have a disclaimer policy that number one talked about food allergies, right? you're not liable if somebody tries your recipe as is and ends up having a bad reaction to it because of a certain food allergy or food poisoning or if it's medical herbal recipes that are supposed to be for healing purposes I would also go as far as say include some kind of a medical disclaimer there like I'm not a medical professional I'm not a doctor every information given here is meant to be for informational, educational purposes only. Do not take what I say as medical advice. For a specific medical advice, talk to your doctor. Something along those lines. Yeah, a friend of mine hosts a fitness podcast, and that's what he's got at the top of the show. It goes through his certifications. Look, I'm a certified personal trainer. I have this certification, this thing, but I am not a doctor. You know, And then he goes through, like, this is not medical advice. Don't sue us. Stay safe. Blah, blah, blah. I'm at the footer of bulletproof.com and he's got a disclaimer that says statements made on this website have not been evaluated by the United States Food and Drug Administration. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information provided by this website or this company is not a substitute for individual medical advice. I imagine in this herbal recipe, publication, you could have something really similar because I see that on supplements all the time. Yes, that's a medical disclaimer. 
That's a just a very straightforward medical disclaimer that anybody who ever talks about any topic that can be interpreted as health and wellness related, fitness related, weight loss or treatments should and must have on their website. How about on the investing front? Like, you know, I've had several relationships with different advertisers and the investing related disclaimers are always interesting. Like, this is not a solicitation for investment. This is not investment advice. Like, do your own due diligence, stuff like that. Any experience there? Well, money niche, it is considered the high risk area. And generally speaking, aside from if you're in a place where you can consider having insurance on all of that, there is no specific disclaimer. For example, there's a specific medical disclaimer. There's a specific like legal disclaimer. There's not one particular specific finance disclaimer. There are certain ways you can form your language. For example, if you're giving investing advice or uh, talking about maybe loans, talking about principal amounts and all of that, I don't know. You can have certain kind of clauses in your disclaimer policy where you tell them, like, if you are, you can say that you're a certified, let's say, accountant, or I don't know if there's a certification for investing. Sorry, I don't know much about that. But if you're certified, you can say, you know, you hold all these credentials, you have these licenses, but investing is a very big decision that is not just based on one little thing, right? Whether you'll succeed or not, I assume it's based on many factors that you have to take into consideration. So what you want to have in your disclaimer policy is a guarantee clause. And when I say guarantee clause, I really mean an anti-guarantee clause. And in that clause, you want to say, if you act on this information provided on my website, I do not give any guarantees that you'll have the same success as I did or as John did. Every person's situation is based on their particular circumstances. And there are many factors that go into whether a certain investment will be successful or not. So make sure you consult with appropriate professionals to evaluate your success chances or rates or something along those lines. Okay, okay. I like it. Now, we'll follow up on this, and this is a great question from Maury, who asks, how much protection is really offered by having a disclaimer or a link to a disclaimer in the footer of my website? It's kind of twofold. So just because you have a disclaimer policy that says I'm not liable, doesn't mean that if somebody gets injured, they're not going to try to sue you. But what it does mean is you have a way to fight that. Now, whether you'll be successful or not will depend on, again, different factors, how you talk about certain information in your, let's say, blog post or videos, whether your tone intends for people to take it as advice and act on it, whether you made it very clear that this is just purely for informational purposes. So if you have a very good disclaimer policy where you cover all your bases, where you address all possible and potential scenarios that might come up, then a disclaimer policy will provide you protection because even if you do get sued, you have a way to fight it off. You have a way to protect yourself in court. But if you have a very weak or general disclaimer policy that doesn't address any of the situations that might arise, then the person can say like, how should I have known that 
this would have happened. You didn't warn me against it. And they might have a better chance at winning that case than you. All right, fair enough. All right, Miriam. If I'm creating content online, blog posts, podcast episodes, YouTube videos, do I need to do anything special to have that work be considered copyright? Or just by hitting publish on a blog post, like that becomes copyrighted automatically? Copyright is automatic. So from the moment that the work is published, it exists, it's, you have automatic copyright protection for that. And if anybody copies that work, you can definitely send them a cease and desist letter. You can do a DMCA takedown notice. Where copyright registration comes into play, official registration, is if and when you want to pursue court action. So if none of the things worked, if you ask this person to take down, let's say, a copy of your blog post. Let's walk through that process because that's happened quite a few times. And I actually just, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I started ignoring it because it's like, it's not worth fighting. Like, it's not worth the time to do it. But like, say you're, you're all upset about it. Somebody, you found your identical blog post, somebody copied and pasted it on some garbage site. You can file what's called the DMCA takedown notice and try and get their host to shut down the site or try and get this blog owner to remove it. But they clearly don't care. They copied and pasted it anyways, or maybe a bot copied and pasted it anyway. So like, maybe you can walk through what that process looks like and whether you think that's worthwhile or maybe that's just a sign of flattery. <laughs> so here's the thing. The first step, at least for me, if it's something worth for you to even go after it, like you said, sometimes you just don't care and you know you see plagiarized pins on Pinterest all the time. If somebody copies your work, whatever, like some people are okay with that, some aren't. But let's say, and I've had this real life example where I was helping somebody with their case. This person had an online course and there was this person who became a student in that person's online course. And then a few months later created an identical online course. with the same topic. And not only that, but a lot of this person's sales page, wording, landing pages, all of those were copied word for word. So in a situation like that, if it's something that you have monetary benefit from it, obviously if it's an online course, you sell it, you know, you get profit from it. And if somebody copies that, that really hurts you because now People are going to be confused which one is your course, which one is theirs. And if theirs is not up to par and they might confuse it with yours, it hurts your reputation and which means, you know, your finances in the long run. So in a situation like that, where you really want to put a stop to that, the first step would be not to file a DMCA takedown notice, but to send a cease and desist letter. The reason for that is because when you send a cease and desist letter, You can also send an invoice with it. And Getty Images, like the company Getty, is known for doing this a lot. They send cease and desist letter to people who use their images without permission. And they also send an invoice for that a lot. <laughs> Does that work? Like, do they get paid by that? Oh, yes. Because if you don't, the next step is going to be court action. They're not going to do... They might do DMCA just because they'll want to shut you down. But what they'll most likely do is... So you in court and get a bigger settlement out of that and get attorney expenses paid. The DMCA takedown is a popular option among people, especially in the blogging world. 
And anytime anybody asks like, oh, somebody copied my, let's say article or blog post word for word, what should I do? That's the thing that comes up. If you have no monetary gain from that article, and this is just a matter of principle for you, if you just want to take them down, then go ahead and do the DMCA notice. But if you need to get compensated for their use or unfair use for copying your course or changing your affiliate links, I I can't come up with good examples at the moment. But if they profited from that in some way, then you might want to get compensated for that. You might want to send them an invoice. And the thing about a DMCA takedown notice is if it's gone, it's gone. It's not there anymore. So if you didn't get compensated and now you want to pursue court action, you, you have nothing anymore. It might still be possible for you to get paid after the fact, but it's going to be a lot more difficult to prove exactly how this person infringed, how they violated your copyright. So if your main goal is to get financial compensation, do the cease and desist letter. It's a legal letter. I have a free template on my site that I offer. And what that letter says It notifies that other person who copied you that you hold the copyright to that work. If you have a registered trademark, then include a copy of that certificate. But if you don't have a registered copyright, then, you know, you just tell them this is your work. You have copyright. You're the original owner and they've used that work without your permission. You're demanding that they take down that article or else you're going to pursue either a court action or DMCA takedown. And if you've suffered financial loss, you can include an invoice with that and tell them, here is the invoice for the financial damage that I suffered as a result of you unfairly using my content. And you want to give them a time frame. I would say 48 to 72 hours to comply or to get in touch with you at least. If that step doesn't work, if they don't contact you, they don't take down the article, they don't pay your invoice, then obviously they're ignoring you. Now you have two choices. Do you want to do the MCA or do you want to pursue court action? Most people decide to go the DMCA route and there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. And if you have a good documented file of the infringement, this is something that actually tell everybody to do. If you see somebody copied anything from you, what you want to do is you want to go on that site. You want to take very clear screenshots of their website, showing their URL, their domain name. If there's a date, make sure the date is showing in that post. And if you have it really documented and also take screenshots of your case of the same content, then you can do DMCA takedown notice before even pursuing a court action. And DMCA is done with the host, as you mentioned. One tool I've used in the past is called whoishosting.this.com. So you can punch in any website and try and figure out their web host there. That's another option. And the DMCA links are going to be on that host site usually. Some of them provide you with a clear form to fill out. Some of them don't provide a form. They just tell you like for DMCA notices, send us an email or contact us at this address. You want to mention that you did contact this person, but the person didn't do anything. Therefore, you're filing a DMCA takedown. Okay, so you want to first send the person uh, the offending site. If you can find contact information, send them a note, give them 48 to 72 hours to do something. And then if not, then you escalate to this DMCA level. Yes. And then one thing to remember also, the hosting companies that are within the United States 
have to comply with DMCA. But if the hosting company is outside of the United States, then you're kind of out of luck there because there's no law that says that they have to do what you ask them to do. And a lot of this outside U.S. hosting companies don't really comply with DMCA. They care about that person's money because you can't really sue them. They're not under no obligation, but U.S. hosting companies have to. Great. So there's a lesson for the scammers. Go find an overseas host. <laughs> there, there you go. Tip of the day. <laughs> well, Miriam, if I'm learning anything from this call, it's that your intent matters. Put your best foot forward, make a good faith effort, and hopefully steer clear of people trying to purposely <laughs> do you wrong online. Freelanceandmarketing.com. Grab the checklist there for Miriam's free guide to getting your business started legally. And you'll have the choice to opt in to her newsletter or not at that point. Thank you so much for joining me and helping me uh, walk through some of this stuff. I know it's not the world's uh, most exciting topic, so appreciate everybody uh, sticking with us to the end. Miriam, let's wrap this thing up with your number one tip for Side Hustle Nation. Sure. Thanks so much, Nick. I think my biggest tip, as you said, is... Do the best that you can. Don't worry about being perfect when it comes to compliance. Almost nobody's out there perfectly compliant with every single law. Just at least do the bare minimum that you can, such as having the necessary policies, the necessary links, the wording to protect you, and take it one day at a time. This is not a niche where you'll make money, where you'll get traffic. So it's hard for me to give you a super exciting tip right now. <laughs> it's legal compliance, people. <laughs> so just do the best that you can. <laughs> yeah, you'll you'll have a bunch of people checking out your website and your footers, I'm sure of it, just to say like, well, what does Miriam have on her site? So I imagine you'll get a bunch of people checking that out. I do. I do. My own policies on my site get so much traffic. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. Thanks so much for joining me. We'll catch up with you soon. That is it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen. And I'll catch you in the next edition of The Side Hustle Show. Hustle on.